back to our study of uh, Ruth today, <coughs> Ruth chapter 3. And uh, I've pulled up the, the title of uh, the commentary on Ruth that Paul Miller uh, has written called A Loving Life. And uh, that's not just a reference to Ruth herself, but uh, especially when we get to this chapter 3, there is love going a lot of directions. And it's a, a wonderful story and a good opportunity to think what Scripture has to say about loving. And uh, what we've noticed before is that the particular focus on love is around this Hebrew word chesed, which gets variously translated in the Old Testament as favor, kindness, mercy, loving kindness, or uh, the translation that J. Barton Payne uh, wrote in his Old Testament theology that I read in seminary over a half century ago, which I've managed somehow to remember to the present day. I can't remember some people's names that I see every week, but I can remember this. Explain that to me. Covenant faithfulness. I really like that idea that love gets expressed well when it's within the framework of covenant, of commitment to one another. Uh, God's faithfulness to Israel is within the framework of covenant, right? He calls them, he brings them out of Egypt, brings them across the Red Sea, brings them to Mount Sinai, and gives them his covenant. And that covenant is to shape the mutual love of Israel for the Lord, but also the Lord for Israel. So you recall how it starts out. I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of uh, the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage, and then the commitment of Israel is what? You shall have no other gods before me. And that, that legal document is to structure what love for God and God's love for Israel will look like. So covenant is very important in this idea of, <coughs> of hesed. The word is used in Ruth, but, but it's common throughout the Old Testament, especially in the Psalms, where it's directed toward God. All hesed is rooted in God, in his character. And when it shows up in human beings, it's simply a reflection of the character that is in God himself. We are to be imagers of God. That's Genesis chapter 1, right? So, so the Lord's hesed is fundamental and basic to all of this. King David understands that in his shepherd psalm. Surely, goodness and mercy, hesed, will follow me all the days of my life. So that gets translated there as mercy. <clears throat> Some versions translate that as goodness and love. But, but that's the idea that we're working with here. Or Psalm 136 
1. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy, his hesed, endures forever. And, and that's, a, that's a beautiful psalm. 26 verses, and it has that rhythm that every verse in the psalm ends the same way. It ends with that refrain, for his mercy endures forever. Give thanks to the God of gods, for his mercy endures forever. Now what we've seen thus far, finished up chapter 2 last week, was that as this story has moved along, as Naomi has come back from the land of Moab, she comes back, in her own words, I went away full, I came back, the Lord has brought me back empty. And she's depressed, sad, basically passive to life. Uh, But she begins to revive near the end of chapter 2 because Ruth has gone out to glean and by chance ends up in the field of Boaz and has this remarkable experience that Boaz shows chesed, kindness to her, and, uh, and when Ruth gets back with this big sack of grain, extraordinary, uh, Naomi realizes that something has happened, and when she finds out that it's Boaz, a distant relative, uh, things begin to fall in place in her mind. She says, the Lord bless him, bless Boaz. He, which I think is the Lord, the Lord has not stopped showing his kindness, his hesed, to the living and the dead. And she wasn't sure about that before, right? Her circumstances in the loss of her husband and her two sons, uh, the famine, all of that has put a question mark in her mind. You know, is, this, is God really merciful? Is it true that goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life? Is that true? And we can wonder that sometimes as well. But Naomi begins to revive here. She revives because she senses in the actions of Boaz and the success of Ruth. And she begins to sense that God is with her. Although it's an extraordinary thing in this book that God is not very visible. It's as if God is is off in the wings somewhere. And and the writer gives us hints that, that he's in the neighborhood, right? So when Ruth goes out to glean, she ends up in the field of Boaz. Of all the places she could end up, she ends up there. And the implication is God is at work, but he's not real visible. And in fact, the experience of God's kindness largely comes through other people. And that's, that's an important message in Ruth. Well, we'll get on to that. Let's, let's read uh, chapter 3. And I'm just going to call it Doing... Has said. One day, 
This is after the the harvest, the seven, eight weeks of harvest. One day, Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi, said to her, My daughter, I must find a home for you where you will be well provided for. Now Boaz, with whose women you have worked, is a relative of ours. Tonight he will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. Wash, put on perfume, and get dressed in your best clothes. Then go down to the threshing floor, but don't let him know you are there until he has finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, note the place where he is lying. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down. He will tell you what to do. I'll do whatever you say, Ruth answered. So she went down to the threshing floor and did everything her mother-in-law told her to do. When Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits, he went over to lie down at the far end of the grain pile. Ruth approached quietly, uncovered his feet, and lay down. In the middle of the night, something startled the man. He turned, and there was a woman lying at his feet. Who are you? he asked. I'm your servant, Ruth, she said. Spread the corner of your garment over me, since you are a guardian redeemer of our family. The Lord bless you, my daughter, he replied. This kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier. You have not run after the younger men, whether rich or poor. And now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do for you all you ask. All the people of my town know that you are a woman of noble character. Although it's true that I am a guardian redeemer of our family, there is another who is more closely related than I. Stay here for the night, and in the morning, if he wants to do his duty as your guardian redeemer, good. Let him redeem you. But if he is not willing, as surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. Lie here until morning. So she laid his feet until morning, but got up before anyone could be recognized And he said, no one must know that a woman came to the threshing floor. He also said, bring me the shawl you are wearing and hold it out. When she did so, he poured into it six measures of barley and placed the bundle on her. Then he went back to town. When Ruth came to her mother-in-law, Naomi asked, how did it go, my daughter? Then she told her everything Boaz had done for her and added, He gave me these six measures of barley, saying, Don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. Then Naomi said, Wait, my daughter, until you find out what happens, for the man will not rest until the matter is settled today. Well, I think about this as the unleashing of Peset through each of these characters. First, through Naomi. Naomi, you might say, is back in the game. Back in the game of faith. She had pretty much dropped out as the result of her sad experiences, but now she senses that Yahweh is, in fact, looking out for her and caring for her, and so her attention turns to others. In other words, experiencing a fresh God's said, she becomes an agent of the same. And her 
mercy, her loving kindness, is extended to her daughter-in-law, Ruth. She had desired that, in effect prayed for it back in chapter 1. Remember when she makes up her mind to go back to Bethlehem from Moab, she says to her two daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth, uh, go back, go back to your mother's house, and may the Lord show you kindness in the home of another. May the Lord show you his mercy, his loving kindness. So she's in effect prayed for that, but now she's going to become the agent to see that that happens if she can. So she's got this plan, a nighttime plan. Now I know that that doesn't look like night. It looks like morning to me. But see, if it really looked like night, you wouldn't be able to see the picture. So don't complain. So she, she's got this plan, right? Uh, why didn't she go into Bethlehem and find Boaz's house and knock on the door and say, Boaz, I've got an idea. Answer? Don't know. We don't know enough about the customs of the time to say this makes sense. It's a strange plan for sure, right? Uh, As Paul Miller says in talking about it, so what could go wrong? Answer, everything. It's at night. It's at a threshing floor, which in the Old Testament is often associated with immorality. And Ruth is supposed to get gussied up. You know, put on your best clothes, wash, put on perfume. That sounds like a seduction. And in fact, the writer of this story uses a whole set of terms that are ambiguous and suggestive of sexuality. You know? Uncover his feet. Well, that can in the Old Testament sometimes function as a euphemism for uncover his genitals. So what's going on here? What could go wrong? Everything can go wrong. Boaz can wake up and decide nothing doing. Or Boaz, as a man of power and wealth, could take advantage of the situation. That Naomi would pursue this avenue suggests that she has great confidence both in the character of Ruth and in the character of Boaz. I mean, if she didn't, this this is totally nuts. 
And Ruth agrees to follow the plan, except she doesn't quite. (laughs) But she does everything that Naomi instructs her to do, except at the end she, she adds her own twist to it, because what Naomi does is she says, look, uh, when he wakes up, uh, he'll tell you what to do. But in fact, Ruth doesn't quite follow the script. But notice, Naomi's plan is motivated by hesed, by concern for others, by pursuing a course of action for the good of Ruth, not for her own good, but for the good of Ruth. That's the way hesed functions. It's other-oriented. The extraordinary thing is that Ruth follows the plan but adds to it, and she adds to it because Ruth is also, we've seen this earlier with Ruth, Ruth is par excellence in this story, the person who is motivated by Heset. Right, right from the start, huh? Naomi says, go back to your mother's home. Ruth says, I'm with you. I'm coming. For better or for worse, I'm with you until death. That's Hesed. <clears throat> but, uh, but Ruth follows the plan until right at the end <clears throat> when the startled Boaz wakes up and says, Who are you? And she says, I'm Ruth. And then she adds this, verse 9. I'm your servant, Ruth. Spread the corner of your garment over me since you are a guardian redeemer of our family. That wasn't part of the instruction. Spread the corner of your garment over me. That is another metaphorical way to talk about marriage. So Ruth is not allowing for any misunderstanding on Boaz's part, all right? If there's any question why I'm here, this is it. This is a marriage proposal. Boaz, you know, like some guys, might have been a little slow on the uptake. I mean, after all, She's been working in his fields for two months, and now some additional time has gone by, and nothing's happening from Boaz's standpoint. So he may be a guy that needs a little bit of push, you know? But in any case, Ruth says, spread the corner of your garment over me, that is, marry me. But then she adds something else, since you are a guardian redeemer of our family. that's the additional piece that Ruth adds. Now, we've talked about the guardian redeemer a bit before. The guardian redeemer, or kinsman redeemer, is a a family member who uh, has the ability and the responsibility to look out for the family, particularly to preserve lines of inheritance 
and uh, to preserve property within the family, uh, and no doubt some other ways of functioning that aren't explicit in the Old Testament, but the implication is this is somebody who cares for family and is in the position to do so. Ruth says, you are a guardian redeemer. Not only does she say, you should marry me, but you should function as a guardian redeemer. Now, this takes us uh, another step, and, and Boaz realizes that there's an additional step here because you notice what he says. The Lord bless you, my daughter. This <clears throat> kindness, this hesed, is greater than that which you showed earlier. What did she show earlier? Well, she showed this remarkable concern for Naomi, right? That all the people in Bethlehem are talking about. Naomi came from Moab as an outsider, and she came to care for Ruth. That's her expression of hesed that everybody knows about. Boaz has heard the story of that. <clears throat> but now he discerns in what she says a greater hesed. Now, what could that be? And apparently, the reference to guardian redeemer is understood by Boaz, and Ruth as well, to be an obligation on Boaz's part to raise up an heir to the family of Elimelech. To the line that Naomi represents, but has, is in peril of dying out because not only has Elimelech passed away, but both sons have passed away. And that means the family stops. And Ruth, who has no technical obligation here, and Boaz, who has no obligation, nonetheless feel this need to care for Naomi. So Ruth is not just proposing marriage. She is proposing <clears throat> that if Boaz marries her and if they have children, the first son will actually become the heir of Elimelech. And that's why Boaz says, uh, this, is, this is a greater sacrifice. This is greater hesed than you've manifested before. Boaz then takes on the guardian redeemer responsibility, if he can. Now, there's, there's a hitch in that that will have to be dealt with in chapter 4. But he purposes to do it. He rises to the challenge that Ruth gives to him. He will be the guardian redeemer. And it involves this idea of the, the leveret marriage that we talked about before. Where if brothers are living together and one of them dies without a son, his widow must not marry outside the family. Her husband's brother shall take her and marry her and fulfill the duty of a brother-in-law to her. 
So that's the specific of the Deuteronomy law, and evidently what we're looking at here is a broadening of that. It looks like Deuteronomy is a very specific example, but there's a broader understanding, and, and both Ruth and Boaz are working with that. So here you've got three people, and they're all functioning with hesed. Because it's going to cost Boaz something to do this, right? The heir, if he marries her and there's an heir, it, it won't be his heir. It'll be Elimelech's heir. And as we'll see in chapter 4, there's a cost involved. Well, uh, so let's just think about this then. Naomi focuses on Ruth, and she does hesed toward Ruth in this plan. She's not looking out for herself. And Ruth follows Naomi's plan, but adds to it and actually turns the benefits of this action back toward Naomi. And Boaz agrees to act in a way that will benefit both Ruth and Naomi. Love as action. We know that these people are people of hesed because of what they do, not just what they talk about. They do it. Love in the Bible is action-oriented. I've given you this definition before that I memorized a long time ago from one of my professors, and I've just found it helpful to, to reflect on love this way in Scripture. Love is seeking God's best for others. That's a good measure of biblical love, right? In biblical love, other people count more. They, they, they have more weight than self. And because of that, biblical love is always costly love. See, it costs Ruth to love Naomi. And it costs Naomi something to love Ruth. It costs Boaz. We see that in their actions. Costly love. And that's a biblical theme which, like most biblical themes, comes to its focus and fulfillment in the coming of Jesus. Apostle John says, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. Action. Action. The cross. That's how we know what love is. And, as a result, we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. There should be action in our lives that reflects the action of God in Christ toward us. And that love is costly. 
It cost God something to love you and me. Jerry Bridges, former head of the Navigators, says, Love is costly. To forgive in love costs us our sense of justice. To serve in love costs us time. To share in love costs us money. Every act of love costs us in some way, just as it cost God to love us. But we are to live a life of love, just as Christ loves us and gave himself for us at great cost to himself. Love costs. Love is action-oriented. We can look at love or the actions of love and see how it works. It's, it's not just talk. <clears throat> now, I think that's, that's such an important thing to try to get our heads and hearts around because we live in a society that talks a lot about love but in a very different way. Our culture is deeply impacted by what we might call modern romanticism. Modern being the last 200 years. Modern romanticism understands love as a feeling. As infatuation and as sexual ecstasy. So in romantic love, intimacy, particularly sexual intimacy, and passion, that's, that's love. Uh, it's the chemistry that happens across the crowded room that is instantaneous, like putting hydrogen and oxygen together and passing a spark and suddenly you have water. Right? That's, that's a modern understanding of how love works. It is feeling-oriented. It is feeling-dominated. And the problem, of course, is that feelings are highly variable and infatuation is notoriously short-lived, as is sexual ecstasy. And so we find people talking about love a lot and in the initial stages saying extraordinary things. Nobody in the world could fulfill me like this person. And and all these statements, we see it particularly in the, you know, the beautiful people or the powerful people. Uh, and what we find is that there's a red-hot heat that begins and then a sudden cooling in, what, a couple years? A couple months? Occasionally a couple weeks. They get married, and now they're divorced. We hardly have time to turn around. And then we have a whole raft of other people who increasingly are avoiding marriage 
they're still going after intimacy and passion and romantic love, but they're avoiding marriage probably because they sense that that sort of passion is short-lived, and why do you want to complicate it with the legal arrangements? But the story of Ruth, which, which is just an extraordinary love story, is a story about love which is shaped by action. And that action is a reflection of the love of God for us, which is costly love, which is sacrificial love, and which we as moderns have, have difficulty getting in touch with. So what we've got to go back to, I think, is an understanding and a, a commitment, right? Covenant faithfulness, a commitment to seeking God's best for others, including those who are around us, neighbors, friends, spouses. Seeking God's best for others in such a way that love for self increasingly carries less weight and love for others increasingly carries more. Love in action. Chapter 3 in Ruth is hesed, breaking out all over the place. And wouldn't it be wonderful since we're thinking about trying to rebuild that sense of unity in our church if that kind of love would break out all over the place. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you for your great love, the love which follows us all the days of our lives. Indeed, Father, there is no God like you. And we would like to become increasingly those who are known as people of Hesed, who, who reflect you, who are seen by the world around as, as those who love not just in word, but in Indeed, and in truth. Lord, may the beautiful message of this story of Ruth encourage and strengthen our hearts to walk in your ways. We ask it in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. God sends us out from here to show love, mercy, and justice to people in desperate need of grace and hope. So let's stand and sing. Everyone needs compassion, love that's bad.
Father, when our Lord Jesus Christ comes with all his holy ones. Amen. <laughs> 